Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jen Lee, pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and I'm joined today by Dr. Tamara Hajat from Cincinnati Children's. Hey, Tamara. Hey, John. How's it going? Good, 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 good. So it's almost the fall. Tell me some about your summer plans. So um, every year for my birthday, I go to Seattle. And this year, my goal is to go to Olympic Park. I was going to go to Alaska on like a cruise, but I was like, mm, uh, that might be too much planning in my brain. I don't have a lot, of, a lot of brain space right now to plan a big trip like that. So maybe next year, if you have any tips for me on like how to plan my Alaska trip, let me know on Twitter. I'd appreciate that. How I've actually been to Alaska. Totally oh. recommend it. Highly recommend. Didn't do a cruise, but would highly recommend going. Yeah. I think uh, Peter went to Alaska as well, but he did a cruise. So I'll probably sit you both down during NASP again and ask you about Alaska on a cruise and not on a cruise. So I'll decide Mm. then. Yeah. How are you? Let's do that. I'm doing great. Uh, We are hoping to go to the beach this summer. Oh, which I think would be totally doable. We usually go to Myrtle Beach in the summertime. Oh, I've heard of it. I've I've heard of it. It's nice. I've never been there. It's okay. Uh, if you are a college student looking for spring break, that's typically like a go-to spot for a lot of college kids, but we usually stay in the more retirement area, a little bit more low-key. Yeah. Anyway. And our guest today is from one of my favorite cities in the world, New York City. Yeah, but she's actually a former surgeon Right. Who is now a pediatric gastroenterologist, Dr. Mercedes right. Martinez. So she's a professor of pediatrics and medicine and the medical director for intestinal transplant, as well as pediatric abdominal organ transplant at New York Presbyterian. And she is joining us today to talk about a really cool, but also a little bit scary topic, portal hypertension and variceal bleeding. Yeah, she gives us a lot of great information about portal hypertension, the pathophysiology, kind of the background, what to look for, and how to manage it, and also variceal bleeding and managing it kind of when it's bleeding and preventative care. So it's a great episode. You should definitely take some notes because it's a very thorough episode. It's great. Yes, love it. All right. Well, we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Ready? On to to the the show! (laughs) Dr. Martinez, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bowel Sounds today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm extremely honored to be here. I'm very excited to be able to talk uh, with you guys about this topic that is very close to my heart. Good. And this is our first time meeting. So for our listeners and for me, who has never met you before, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Well, I will say that I'm an optimistic and self-confident person who loves my family and work extremely hard to serve my patients and the community. I function as a task-oriented, goal-driven, and overcommitted person. That's pretty cool. That's pretty great. I know. Um, I can, I can relate to that overcommitted yes. <laughs> and task driven. <laughs> um, so you are in Columbia University, which is in the great New York City. I love the city. I like to go there as much as I can. 
tell us if somebody were to visit the city, what is like one great restaurant that they need to try or one one thing or maybe multiple things that they need to go to and try that you can't find on Google? Well, I don't know if I, I know very maybe adventures with restaurants and uh-huh. and maybe the, the place that I go the most and I would recommend to everybody to at least one is Ellie Island and the Statue of Liberty. And this is all over. Oh. But I think that I have my personal perspective of this. I think that for the vast majority of immigrants, Ellis Island was truly the island of hope for generations. And when you go there and see the pictures and testimonial of those early arrivals uh, with nothing in desperation and see how many of these people became very prominent uh, social and cultural or economical in this country. That is something that resonates with me very, very close. I think that you are when people go there, they must accept and realize that the history of this country is the history right. of immigrants. And when I go to the island, I go there maybe more than I should. <laughs> Um, but it's only a reminder of when I arrived to this country 25 years ago with no financial support, unable to speak the language, scared and concerned what is going to happen. And, you know, it's just, it brings me back to those uh, thoughts and how I was scared, but at the same time, I was eager to learn and to work hard and to achieve my dreams of becoming a doctor in this country again. Again, over-optimistic and overachiever. <laughs> uh, but when I go there, I just relate to those moments. Um, and I really feel like um, it's a great place to go at least once in your lifetime. That is so beautiful. I think a lot of our listeners can in some way relate to what you're saying. So we kind of really, truly appreciate you sharing with us your journey to becoming a very successful hepatologist. It resonates with me a little bit because my journey is probably a little bit similar to yours. And speaking of hepatology, before we get into our topic today, will you just walk us through how did you end up becoming a hepatologist? Well, like everything in my life, my journey is a little different than other people. I wish that I could tell you hepatology was my dream. I always wanted yeah. to be a hepatologist. But in reality, my early encounters with patients with significant liver disease was not very inspiring. Um, during my medical school in Cuba and early during my career, I don't know if many of you know, I was a general surgeon in Cuba. Oh, wow. We didn't know that. Whoa. Came to me. Patients came to me with GI bleeds in the emergency room, end-stage liver disease, cirrhotic. Um, the resources there were very limited. Then I would place a lot of Blakemore tubes. Many of you even don't know what that is. <laughs> but I did a lot of those um, balloons placement to stop the esophageal varices from bleeding. We did shunt surgeries with high mortality because patients have very advanced liver disease. Then it was really in the black burner, um, something that maybe I was interested in, but not very passionate about because the outcomes are not that great. But it's when I came to um, Columbia University, New York Presbyterian, to do my fellowship, when I really fell in love with um, the collaborative team associated with the liver, uh, Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation that includes surgical, medical specialties, uh, that care for children with liver disease with education, compassion, um, they change the, the life of these kids. They care uh, with these kids with um, the most advanced uh, clinical innovations and scientific progress. They provide sophisticated medicine 
and surgical technologies uh, resulting in excellent outcomes, so different from my experience before. Eh? Here we can assess the patient, we can assess the severity of the disease, and we can apply new technologies. We can do a liver transplant, which is something that I never saw before I came to Colombia. Um, then uh, my journey really started here, and I guess I fell in love and never left. That's amazing. Which makes you the perfect guest for our topic today, which is we're going to talk about portal hypertension, varices, and variceal bleeding in kids. So portal hypertension, uh, which is an increased pressures in portal venous blood, often but not always is caused by cirrhosis. So we're going to start with some definitions. What is portal hypertension and what are the clinical signs and symptoms that uh, one might see in somebody who has portal hypertension? Portal hypertension is the main driver of complications in patients with advanced liver disease. And it also could be the first manifestation of a liver disease that has been burning for many years. And there are also some cases when the patient doesn't have cirrhosis, doesn't have advanced liver disease, and those are this, uh, classified as non-cirrhotic portal hypertension. Therefore, us in pediatric, is, uh, the majority of these patients are patients with portal vein thrombosis. But let me start, uh, maybe this definition is a little technical. Um, cirrhotic portal hypertension is defined by values of hepatic venous pressure gradient of more than five millimeters of mercury. Maybe many of you said, wow, what is that? We take care of patients <laughs> with portal hypertension, but this is why we are here. Yes. New, eh? Then this hepatic pressure gradient um, is the difference between the wedge occluded hepatic venous pressure and the free hepatic venous pressure. How do we get these pressures? Oh, this is an invasive procedure, and this is maybe why many people are not very familiar with that in pediatric, but it's very widely used in adults. Then the way that we that this is done through a transjugular approach, you get a catheter that advances to he the hepatic veins and measure the pressure of the hepatic veins. And then you advance this catheter a little bit more and wedge the catheter very close at the end of the hepatic veins, or you inflate a balloon and get the pressure on the other side. The difference between these two is what we call the hepatic venous pressure gradient. And a number more than five millimeters of mercury is diagnosis of portal hypertension. But really clinical portal hypertension, you see when this number is more than 10. Mm -hmm. We are very aware of the difficulties of getting this test done in pediatrics. Children needs um, sedation. The catheters are small. Maybe it's not a lot of expertise to do this in children, and this is why we don't talk about uh, these values very much. But in adults, it's really used to make clinical decisions, to evaluate response to therapy. For example, a decrease of the portal pressure to less than 10 decrease the risk of complications. If you see a decrease of the portal uh, gradient less than by 20%, it's a good response to treatment. Then all these things are used to really guide therapy, uh, but it's invasive. Then for many of us, portal hypertension is based on a clinical uh, laboratory and radiological data. Then clinically, you see this patient that comes to you, uh, most likely have stigmata of liver disease if the patient has advanced cirrhosis. You can see a splenomegaly, uh, collaterals in the abdomen, 
ascites. Laboratory use thrombocytopenia is maybe the most relevant uh, value. You can see some leukopenia in more advanced case, and this is why many of our patients end in seeing hematology for many years before they come to see us. And then radiologically, we will see uh, the collaterals or we see vascular thrombosis. And you can use a wide variety of uh, radiological studies from ultrasound to CT scan to MRIs. It's a full uh, spectrum of evaluation. Wow. I mean, there's so many different approaches here and it can be so challenging. And so I think for this particular episode, we're going to kind of talk through a case just because I think there's just so many variables and I think that might help direct our discussion. So, you know, say we have a child who has autoimmune hepatitis, but we don't know if they have portal hypertension. They've never had variceal bleeding. They're about 12 years old, which is a typical age we may see. And so what approach do you have for screening for portal hypertension, knowing all of these challenges that you just mentioned? And screening for varices, cirrhosis, and does this approach change based on the underlying etiology of chronic liver disease or the patient age? Well, the diagnosis of cirrhosis is histologically. You have a biopsy that shows you that you have cirrhosis. Then if this is a new patient that has a new diagnosis, you might have that in front of you and you could say this patient has cirrhosis or not. But let's say that is a patient that you have been treating for six years with autoimmune hepatitis. It's very different of a patient with, for example, biliary attrition, uh, because autoimmune hepatitis, if you are treating the patient well, it shouldn't develop portal hypertension. The patient shouldn't have advanced liver disease, while a patient with biliary attrition that was born already with cirrhotic liver, depending on how the evolution of the disease goes, the patient might have progression of the disease. Clinically, you see the patient in front of you, this patient has splenomegaly, this patient has collaterals, right there, you know, this patient very likely have portal hypertension. But those are the most advanced cases. You might want to learn that this, this patient have portal hypertension or have some progression of the fibrosis before that. And as we said, liver biopsy is invasive and nobody wants to do very often. Then platelet count is something easy that you can see the platelet counts are low, you can start thinking this patient might have portal hypertension. And one thing that I want to mention, the lack of clinical findings doesn't exclude portal hypertension. Then there are patients that have portal hypertension and you don't find any of these splenomegaly or ascites, then it's kind of a difficult to assess. Then uh, the platelet count is great, it's easy, it's available to you, but doesn't correlate very well with the hepatic venous gradient. Then we have been creative over the years to try to generate more tools. And one tool that has been used for many years, uh, and it has been actually validated in pediatric, there are few reports, is the APRI score, is the AST to platelet ratio index. The problem with the APRI score is that there are different numbers that we give to this, and you just uh, divide the AST of the patient by a normal value that is considered 40 by the platelet count. It's kind of a math involved. And then the problem is that the sensitivity and specificity of this APRI score is only in the 70s, 72, 77%. Then you miss a lot of patients that you might want to identify or you might think that the patient might have portal hypertension when they don't. Then this is not a very good way, but at least it's something that we have 
to using these patients. More recently, um, we actually, there are new techniques that has been developed. For example, the ability to assess the liver stiffness. Uh, stiffness is a physical property of the liver influenced by the amount of liver fibrosis content. And this has represented a major advance in the field of hepatology. Uh, we can measure the liver stiffness or we also there is a new technology called sonoelastography that gives you also numbers and have proved there be significant indiscriminated patients with and without clinical significant portal hypertension. For example, adults very clear have defined that a patient with a liver stiffness of more than 20 kilopascals and a platelet count of less than 150 have a, is an strong indicator for portal hypertension. The problem is that we don't have those specific values in children. There are new people have been working very hard in the last few years to develop these values, uh, but still there is a lot of um, difference in the technologies that is using the tool. Maybe the elastography that I have in my hospital is different than your elastographies, and we don't have thousands of children in any given hospital to do this test. Then we need to be collaborative. We need to have multi-center studies and all these are things that are cumbersome. Uh, for example, the elastography shouldn't be the same for a six month old or a 12 years old than a patient that is overweight. Um, we have a big problem with a population that we take care of very frequently. For example, the Fontan patient, the Fontan patient, Fontan associated liver disease. These patients, regardless of the amount of uh, scar tissue, they have a very, a, an increased stiffness. Then we have these problems and many of these parameters really don't correlate uh, very well with the things described in the literature. What I would usually do is perform serials of these um, elastographies in the patient and we can see how they change over time and we are using the patients of their own control. This is not very scientific, but if I see that the stiffness is increasing, I get concerned about those patients. Uh, the other thing that is uh, maybe more recently also is the splint stiffness. This is a new technology and people feel like because the splint is more related to the portal hypertension, it might be a better uh, parameter to define portal hypertension. There is a lot of things in the pipeline. There are some laboratory tests that you can use, um, the fibrosure, then a lot of things that are out there Many of those are not validated in pediatric, but uh, I think that you can draw some conclusions and try to use it in your patients if you don't want to be doing liver biopsies or endoscopies that are maybe the way that you really can assess these problems. Absolutely. So that was a great kind of overview of how to diagnose a patient with portal hypertension and the different avenues to look into. So for example, our 12-year-old patient has some sign of possible kind of varices or esophageal varices in particular. I guess focusing on esophageal varices, when would you consider screening for them and any primary prevention methods, for example, endoscopically or medically, would you do to prevent bleeding from happening? That is an excellent question. Um, the clinical presentation of portal hypertension in the form of a variceal hemorrhage is very dramatic. And it changed the life of patients. And 
you are traveling and your child have a baristial bleeding. I have uh, patients showing in the ED the day of their birthday, that they're celebrating the birthday and they start with hematemesis. And you can imagine this is very dramatic. And also maybe the first symptom of them recognizing that they have a liver disease. They didn't know that anything is going on. There is really... Um, also associated with morbidity and mortality. Uh, there is a lot of adult data for many years that um, I think that 20, 30 years ago, they reported 20, 30% mortality in the management of this, when these patients presented with variceal bleed. And it has been an extraordinary effort over the years for people to have like an algorithm on how to treat these patients. Um, there are hundreds of clinical trials in adults, including thousands of patients that they have been followed different ways to try to determine what is the right thing to take care of these kids. The problem is we don't have that in pediatric. There are no evidence-based recommendations for primary prophylaxis in the management of children with variceal bleed. And if you are not going to do primary prophylaxis, then you are just going to scope the patient and tell the parents, the parents you have varices and you might bleed. It's worth doing the endoscopy if you are not going to do anything. It's, um, it's a little bit um, difficult. And then adopting the recommendation based on adults' experience, maybe not, not be in the best interest in the children's. You see, there was a publication a couple of years ago uh, from the Children's Network. They report about 630 children that they follow over, I think that was 10 years or so. And this is a patient with biliary atresia. The risk of variceal bleeding at five years was 12.5%. Very low, eh? And this is 600 children. This is as good as it gets for us eh? in pediatric. And then... From that 12.5% of children that bled, nobody died. Then the question is, is this really worth to put these patients through endoscopies and all this if they don't carry any mortality? 12% um, of those children that bled went to liver transplant and it drives, you know, you, you know that when you get there, you the patient is at the age of something big, then that is one question. On the other hand, if you look at a publication by Dr. Molliston and collaborators, I think that was two years ago, she looked at the FIS database, it's a pediatric health uh, system database, and she looked at about 3,000 kids with portal hypertension, and this is a conglomerate of about 50 pediatric hospitals in the country. I can imagine that that might be one of the best 50 pediatric hospitals in the country that they collaborate to do that. And about half of those kids bled in a period of years, about 1,500, I think, or 1,200. And in that cohort, there is 7% mortality during the admission and 20% mortality overall. Then when you look at these numbers, you say, wow. It's not that benign. Then I think that it's just um, the mix of um, how you want to look at the problem. Then here at Columbia, we screen for viruses. We screen for portal hypertension, and we try to eradicate the viruses. I don't know if that is the right thing to do, but this is what we do here, and this is what I want to put the two examples, because I don't want people to get the idea that this is what they should do. Um, but when you get these patients that were on vacation in New York, and they have a variceal bleed. Uh, one of my patients was vacationing during a Christmas break in Colorado in an area that the closest pediatric hospital was three hours away, and he has a variceal bleed. Those things really get 
close to home for you and you, you want to prevent that from happening. And for that reason, I think that maybe a screening is important. Then the adults screen and also they prophylax, what it calls primary prophylaxis. Um, the backbone of primary prophylaxis for adults is non-selective beta blockers. And these non-selective beta blockers, we know that they have B1 adrenergic blockade that address a decrease the portal flow through decreasing the cardiac output. And a beta 2 blockade that decreases the portal flow through splenic vasoconstriction. Uh, very important, most of the effects are based on the beta 2 blockade. I don't know if any of you have a star patients on beta blocker, but that involves that the patient has to come to your office every week to check the heart rate and you want to decrease the heart rate by 20%. And sometimes it's very difficult and you get to very high dose and you stop there. And But then you see the effects of the viruses decreasing. And I have done that uh, many, many times and I have done that in the past. I do that um, less now. The biggest uh, concern is um, what happens when one of these kids on beta blockade bleed. Young children's response to hypovolemia uh, is mainly with increased heart rate. They don't increase the stroke volume that much. If this kid is has beta blockade, they don't have the capacity to respond with tachycardia. And maybe the, a small amount of bleeding can cause shock in these kids. And for that reason is that many people don't feel like the risks outweigh the benefits or the benefits outweigh the risks in this uh, patient population because uh, they depend on that heart rate and we are nervous. This is a patient at high risk for bleeding and now I'm going to do beta blockade. There is other things that people do that is called pre-primary prophylaxis. This is the prevention of the progression of the varices. Then if you endoscopy on someone and the varices are small, you can start them on beta blockade. Those patients are at lower risk of bleeding and the beta blockers can prevent the progression of the viruses. Um, the problem is, is we don't know, most of these studies in adults were done on patients with hepatitis C, that was a progressive disease. Um, now there are studies done in adults on patients um, with uh, patients with NASH. Many of the adults studies also done on patients with alcoholic cirrhosis. Those are progressive disease, but we don't know if, for example, a biliary atresia patient, the disease is progressing or is static or is regressing. Then what will be the value of starting this pre-primary prophylaxis if we don't know if the portal hypertension is getting worse? Then all these dilemmas in pediatric um, are very difficult. I want to, at the end, touch on the endoscopic ligation. That is the second method for um, this uh, primary prophylaxis. This is what we do. There was a recent publication, maybe 2017, not that recent anymore, uh, from France. Uh, Dr. Duchenne collaborators in Paris. They look at their experience. It was a 15-year cohort. They look at our close to 200 patients. And they did prevention primary prophylaxis in one group. And knowing the other group. This is not randomized, this is not, but the study demonstrated that the patients that underwent primary prophylaxis did much better, have uh, less mortality and less complications than the patients that didn't receive the primary prophylaxis. They also felt a small group of patients failed the primary prophylaxis, and those were patients that they start banding later. 
It was very, also very interesting in this study. They did a sclerotherapy for prophylaxis, which I will never advocate. I will never advocate. I think that the sclerotherapy carry a lot of complications that I will not advocate to do sclerotherapy for primary prophylaxis. But this team in France did it. And they, uh, the conclusion of the studies is that all patients should receive primary prophylaxis to prevent morbidity and mortality. Were those pediatric patients? I may have missed yeah, that. Yeah, those are pediatric. Oh, they were pediatrics. Patients. All oh, these are interesting. pediatric patients. That is the largest uh, cohort that I have seen reported in pediatric patients. Um, and the primary prophylaxis they use is medicine, ligation, and sclerotherapy? No, they use only sclerotherapy. Just and sclerotherapy. Ligation. They didn't use Oh, medication. and ligation. And everybody, many people are scared of using uh, beta blockers. On mm-hmm. So, you know, I just want to kind of move on a little bit to our patients. So say we did or did not do this, and she's actually coming into the ER with an acute bleed. Say we're the fellow, and I always make this joke because all fellows do this, but they say, hey, let me call my attending and call you right back. Um, but can you walk us through your process of that initial assessment and stabilization, and how do you make the determination of, hey, it's the middle of the night on Christmas night, we need to go in tonight, versus doing medication stabilization and maybe going to the OR at a different time? The third thing that you need to do is assess the patient and see the hemodynamical stability of the patient. You need to assess the patient. You need to resuscitate the patient if they are hemodynamically unstable. The goal of the resuscitation is to preserve tissue perfusion. Then you will start with whatever you have in hands. If the patient is hemodynamically stable and you might not need to give normal saline or albumin right away, it might be better to just give blood. And remember, this patient with portal hypertension, they most of the time don't handle fluids very well. They might have uh, some subclinical ascites or they might have clinical ascites. And now you are giving more volume to this patient. That is a problem. But this is the third thing. You assess the patient. Um, maybe the patient know that they have liver disease, but they may not. And if they know that they have liver disease, I don't put an NG down for a GI bleed. I just start um, with lab blood work and resuscitation and some medication. Let me walk you through about the resuscitation first and what is the kind of blood products that I use and how much. Uh, much is no better here. Then don't try to just give two units of blood or three units of blood. You need to make the patient hemodynamically stable with a minimum amount of blood products that you can. And actually, the aim of the hemoglobin is 6 to 8. You don't want a hemoglobin of 10. And the problem is the more volume you give to these kids, maybe they stop. Sometimes they bleed and they stop. But if you give a lot of volume and you increase the blood pressure, then they bleed again. And what you want is to keep this patient stable all night long, then you will be able to stop them in the morning. Or you want to transfer the patient from one hospital to the other. You don't want this patient bleeding in route. Then minimum resuscitation to keep hemodynamical stability, goal of hemoglobin 7 to 8. Then CBC, liver test, biochemical profile, coagulation profile, type and screen because you need to give the blood products and an ammonia level. And we will talk about why all these are important. The liver test you want to know is how, how is the liver of these patients. You don't know this patient, you just met them. Um, you want to know what is the bilirubin, what are the liver tests. Sometimes just for having, if they have an underlying liver disease and they have a low blood pressure, 
deliver this, my elevate, something that we call as no, as a shock liver. The biochemical profile is relevant because you want to make sure that this patient is not hyponatremic. Hyponatremic patients are sicker than you think. They can go uh, down very fast um, when the electrolytes are not right. And then the coagulation profile. <laughs> this is maybe one of the biggest problems that we have because we order, but then I don't think that we should correct coagulopathy. First of all, the conventional coagulation tests that we do here uh, proton beam time, INR, PTT, really, they do not reflect the hemostatic status of the patient. They don't reflect the risk of bleeding from the patient. Patient with advanced liver disease has an elevated INR and PTT, but they also have a low protein S and protein C that are antithrombotic factors. Then the balance here, what we do in the emergency room really doesn't correlate, then you shouldn't correct those numbers. And remember, the variceal bleed is to do portal hypertension, not due to the coagulopathy. Then you need to try to control the portal hypertension and not the coagulopathy. There is also, uh, uh, then giving FFP is not recommended for this patient. And at the same time, there is no evidence that the platelet count or the fibrinogen level correlate with the risk of failure to control bleeding or rebleeding. Patients bleed because they have high portal hypertension, patient re-bleed because you didn't take care of the portal hypertension. You didn't do, you banded, but new collaterals develop and they bleed again. However, if you have a patient and you cannot control the bleeding and you are in the OR and you're having big trouble with bleeding and maybe those patients might require some kind of uh, products. Because volume is always a concern. FFP might not be ideal, there is a new product that I don't know why no many people knows about that. It's something called Case Centra. It's a proton beam complex concentrate. It's a concentrate of the vitamin K dependent, and this is called Case Centra, vitamin K dependent factors. It's factor two, seven, nine, and 10. And they also have protein S and protein C. Very small volume. This is a few cc's, can control the coagulopathy, can normalize that INR then this is something that you um, can do. The other problem is what about those patients that come with an acute variceal bleed and they are on anticoagulation? Some patients with end-stage liver disease that might have a portal vein thrombosis or have some other coagulable disorders might be on anticoagulation. There is no question that you should stop the anticoagulation, but for how long? It has to be individualized. This is when you need to call your hematology friends and say, help me here. For how long I can stop it? The patient is bleeding. Once I control the bleeding, when I can bring them back. I think that vitamin K is something that everybody gives to these patients because it's easy. And if they have a coagulopathy from uh, vitamin K deficiency, that helps us. And uh, it's always better. I'd rather stop somebody with an INR of one than with an INR of three. But if that means that I need to give 500 cc's of FFP, I'm not going to do it. Then this is the balance, risk-benefit, and what I want to achieve. The other portion that is very important is antibiotic prophylaxis. This is an integral part of the therapy for patients with variceal bleed, for those patients with advanced liver disease. And I will say this might have been the most relevant change in the management of patients with variceal bleed in the last 30 or 40 years. Many years ago, patients came with variceal bleed. They didn't get antibiotic. 
They developed SBP. It's a patient in the ICU. The ascites is there. We gave fluid. We didn't think about the patient is not responding. And people didn't think about sepsis because SBP is not flourish sepsis. They don't have a lot of fever. They don't have a lot of peritoneal signs. And for these patients that are coming with bleed, the translocation is there. Then antibiotics must be there. And the other part is encephalopathy. Blood in the GI tract is a bit lot of protein, and they become encephalopathic. You see patients coming with GI bleed, totally encephalopathic. You, you need to intubate them, and you think this patient needs to go for transplant, can't even they bridge to transplant. And once you stop the bleeding and you clean the GI tract, they wake up. Keep that in mind that uh, you need to treat the hyperammonemia. And then the last but not least, the medication that is my favorite is optriotide because it keeps me home. Outriotide is a somatostatin analog that decreases the inflow of blood to the portal system by constricting the esplanic arterioles and significantly reducing intravaricial pressure. Then when we give outriotide to the patient, we can wait six, seven, eight, nine hours to come and do the endoscopy, and we can stay home. Outriotide usually in pediatric patients is um, way-based. We start with two micrograms per kilo bolus and then go with one or two micrograms per kilo per hour infusion. And in adults or older kids, the maximum dose is like a 50 or 100 micrograms bolus and 50 micrograms per hour infusion. And most patients actually uh, do very well. They stabilize. You have time to make them hemodynamically stable and scope them in the morning. Very rare we have to come in the middle of the night. And that is for the patient that maybe you thought that you can, if the patient came at 1 p.m. and you think that you can leave it for tomorrow, that is a mistake. Try to get that patient stabilized and scope him before you go home because so many hours later, you might not get the same thing. But you need time to stabilize the patient and usually um, the octreotide and the blood products help. How about use of proton pump inhibitors? Is that something that you do in addition to octreotide? Have you ever used it instead of? Is octreotide for everybody? For portal hypertension is octreotide. Actually, proton pump inhibitors are not recommended. If the patients come with a GI bleed and you are not sure that this is a variceal bleed. And, and this is uh, maybe something that we also should, uh, should talk about. There are many patients with esophageal varices that present with a bleed. They might not be bleeding from the esophageal varices. Then if they are bleeding from a duodenal ulcer, they might benefit from, from PPIs. But the PPIs, I... After then, if I start the patient, which I start the patients on that, I usually start PPI bolus. I, it's not enough lines to have blood, IV fluids. Uh, the octreotide drip is a priority. And then the PPIs. The PPIs, I use it once I scope the patient. If I didn't find an ulcer, the only thing that we found is varices. Then, you know, still you keep the patients on PPI because the reflux of the acid in that uh, varix that you ligate that eventually become an ulcer, then that acid reflux can cause bleeding in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but you shouldn't keep these patients on very long-term PPI. Actually, some adults literature um, recommend stopping once you diagnose that this is just a variceal bleed because of the risk for aspiration pneumonia, the risk for clostridium difficile um, infection and colitis on this patient population, then uh, many of the adults uh, recommend stopping the PPI after the endoscopy proof that this is a, a variceal bleed. 
That's very important to know because I think everybody's thought process would be, okay, just start them on PPI and octerotide, but it's uh, good to know the risks and benefits of the medications that you're using. So overnight, the patient's stabilized, octerotide, your best friend, was used to stabilize the patient. And uh, you come in first thing in the morning, 7.30 a.m. to scope the patient. Can you walk us through what you bring to the OR and then what you're looking for in terms of the scope, kind of the location of varices, the grade, uh, the wheels, and how would you decide on which method to use to stop the bleeding or prevent further bleeding? First of all, you are scoping this patient, but you don't know what you are going to find. You think that the patient has variceal bleeding, but as I said before, you might find other things. Then you should bring all the tools that you have to take care of a bleeding. You need to use your banding device, use a scleral device, your clips, your loops, your sprays. You bring everything with you because you are going to evaluate the patient first and then decide what you need. Then you have to bring your whole bleeding basket, everything in there. Um, I'm going to tell you this. If you want to remember something about scoping a GI bleeding from this um, discussion, is this part. If the patient doesn't have a contraindication before you take this patient to the OR, give an erythromycin infusion. 20, 30 minutes before the OR, give erythromycin to this patient. Sometimes they forget and we are just pushing the patient out of the ICU and we just push the erythromycin there. Erythromycin is a prokinetic. And when this, uh, by the patient that get anesthesia and you enter the scope, you will find zero blood in the stomach. The most difficult part of a GI bleeder is to see where the patient is bleeding from and to find the source. Once you find the source, most of us can handle anything else, but find it. When you get to the stomach and the stomach is full of blood and you spend two hours or three hours of your day clearing that blood clot, then erythromycin is fantastic. It works 90% of the time you go in and there is no blood in the stomach. And you see the blood clots in the duodenum. They, they really, the erythromycin push it out. Then this is the first consideration. The second consideration is a stop to anesthesia. Um, most pediatric anesthesiologists intubate everyone, but sometimes once in a while, if, depending on which institution you practice, adult anesthesiologists don't intubate everyone for um, endoscopy. Then this patient that is bleeding and is vomiting blood should have an airway protection. Then that is a most um, is safe, safety first, very safe that this patient should be intubated. And then I don't use, so even if the baby is a small baby, I don't use neonatal scope for this. These are procedures when you need big channels to flush, to, to intervene. Then um, I use a regular pediatric scope or an adult scope all the time for GI bleeders. Um, even if there are small babies, I don't think that you need to use this neonatal scope. Then I advance the scope and I perform a full endoscopy. I assess for duodenal ulcers, gastric varices, gave portal hypertension, gastropathy, esophageal varices. And, you know, you go in, you, are, you see the varices, but you unless you see that the varix is bleeding right there, uh, and most of the time you don't see that these days because the octreotide held decreasing that pressure in the varix, and the varix are not bleeding at the time that you go there. And for that reason, sometimes you feel like the varix is not big enough this is not the varics that I think that the patient bled from because usually the varics are very big and these are not. 
or this body might have been decompressed by the bleeding or it might be decompressed by the octreotide. Then these are things to keep in mind. If you don't find any other source of bleeding, banding their varices or sclerosing their varices. Don't leave the patient without doing an intervention. I get referrals very often. Oh, we scoped, but we didn't think that the varices were picking off and we didn't do anything. And then the patient rebled a week after. No reason to do that. And then the best area where you assess the severity of the varices is in the distal esophagus. And this is where you are going to start therapy. I don't think that I'm going to, to talk here about the different classification of the severity of esophageal varices. There are many classifications. There is the Paquette classification, the Dagradi classification, the Japanese Research Society classification. There is no need for that. I really think that you need to describe in your procedure what you saw. You need to assess the size of the varices and the, the, the signs that can tell you that there was risk that these varices are going to bleed soon or they bled. And these are these red patches or a strip on the top of the varix. It's a sign of increases for bleeding. They are called uh, red signs or the red well signs. And when you see those, those varices next to be banding before you leave uh, that, body, that patient's body. Um, Sometimes I think that they are small varices on top of the varices because there are small vessels on top of that big vessel and those are the vessels that bleed. And that right there tells you that the severity of the portal hypertension. Then you remove the scope because you went in with a scope with no attachment. The best method for me to control varices is banding. Variceal bleeding or to do primary prophylaxis is banding. The problem is that the banding device is very large and you cannot pass through the throat of the baby very often. Mainly if they are intubated and then you want to pass this device, it's almost impossible. I, I think that I have passed it in people that are a year old. It's a lot of negotiation with the anesthesiologist the fleet, the, to, uh, to decrease the size of the balloon of the uh, endotracheal tube. Is bang, and sometimes it's just better to do the sclero if you think that the patient is not big enough to accommodate the band device. For the sclero, you just go through the through the channel with a needle and a sclero. You can do inject direct into the varix or even paresophageal injection. Sometimes people are very scared of injecting the sclerosin agent in the varix. And when you inject, they bleed. You are going to cause bleeding, but don't panic. You need also some, already something to stop that bleeding that is injecting the sclerosin agent. Go to the next varix and sclerose the next one and go to the next. And by that time, the first one is stop bleeding. The second time, the second one is stop bleeding. And this is a sclerosis of varices, injecting on the varix. And it's very easy, um, but it's not a recommended method. Really, this sclerosis can cause ulcerations, can cause problems, uh, can uh, recurring ulcerations in the esophagus, can cause esophageal strictures. It's not ideal. Then the ideal method is banding. And for the banding, you remove the scope because the scope uh, and you put the attachment, the banding attachment. There are different type of uh, banding device. I recommend that people become familiar with one, uh, mainly when you don't do many of these, become familiar with one and, and how to assemble the uh, bander devices is um, sometimes the most stressful part. People don't know how to put it together and you didn't have to put it together. Otherwise it would not function. Uh, inside the patient, you misfire, you get a lot of problem. And once you do the suction and you have to release, bleeding happen, then make sure that attachment is placed appropriately in the uh, scope. 
You go inside again, all of a sudden you see that it's more difficult to pass the scope because now you have a bigger attachment on the tip of the scope and you have decreased visibility because the attachment with all the bands are at the tip of the scope, then your visibility decreases significantly. That's what you need to do endoscopy before and do all the assessment with the, without the attachment. Once you are in the stomach, I pull back into the esophagus and I kind of know already which varices I'm going to band first. I put that in my head when I go with a regular scope and then I go to that. I put the device on top of the varices and I do suction. When you do suction, the varix comes to you you move the device and fire. Many people are very nervous and think, one on fire, I let this go. Uh, I think that this is the number one reason why many people misfire the bands. I tell the fellows when they are doing this first time, once you deploy that you feel that the band is there, count one, two, three, and then you blow air. By doing that, you are sure that the band is in place. If you do the band de deploy and you pull out too fast, you might pull out before the band can appropriately place into the esophageal varices. And that's it. You do that again and again and again until you see um, that you eradicate the varices. Most of the time, after you put two or three very distally, most of the pro proximal varices disappear. It's like a miracle happened. All these varices that were here, now they are not here anymore because you stopped the blood from coming through. Things that you tell the patient when you do the banding is sometimes they have some chest tightness. If you band too high, this is the other thing. Don't get very excited and place too many bands because if you band above the uh, maybe half of the esophagus, the patient gets terrible chest pain and is very uncomfortable. Then try to do the distal banding first. So that was a great an overview about how to approach a patient after they're stabilized during the endoscopy. So the patient has been stabilized, went to the OR, you did some banding and uh, stopped the variceal bleeding. The most common question asked by the nursing team and by the family and possibly the fellows is when can we advanced feeds? When can the patient uh, start eating and drinking post-procedure? And once the patient is stabilized and gets to go home, is there anything that you would do to prevent recurrent variceal bleeding? Well, I think that the most important thing is you did the procedure, but sometimes these patients re-bleed. Very rare, but sometimes happen. The other thing is you are giving octreotide to this patient. You are decreasing the blood flow to the intestine. Then these two things maybe dictate when you are going to let the patient bleed. When you do these procedures in the outpatient basis, that they come for follow-up of this uh, banding, they go home, I let them eat the same day. Uh, I think that the biggest issues when they are bleeding, I want to make sure that the bleeding is stopped and I don't have to take them back to the OR. Um, after banding, I recommend and after sclero a soft mechanical diet as soon as the patient can tolerate. And that's it. They get this uh, soft mechanical diet. And for seven days, I tell them um, that they can have a bleeding uh, maybe three, four days after the banding because when those uh, bandings fall off, an ulcer can form in that area and they can have the bleeding. Um, the other thing that we prescribe is a medication called sucralfate. We are familiar with that. And we prescribe that three, four times a day to provide like a coating substance on top of those ulcers to prevent the bleeding. Um, but totally normal activity. They can do everything that they want. No limitations. They can go back to school. 
And then to prevent the bleeding, you can do two things. You need to eradicate the viruses, which is um, doesn't happen. As I told you, you put three or four bands and you don't see more viruses there, but they will come back. And then you need to do this every three to four weeks until total eradication. And once you eradicate the varics, that means that they came back and you don't see any varics. You call them back in six months because they can come back or you can call them back in a year. That's why many people advocate to use beta blockers that might be preventing the development of new viruses. Depending on the patient, you might need to talk about doing tips or doing other interventional procedures um, to prevent the recurrence of, of the bleed. So just to clarify, because we mentioned primary prophylaxis and the beta blockers having some concern, what is your approach to using these beta blockers for the secondary prophylaxis? So you've banded them, we don't have any more. Would you use it in that instance? Well, I don't think so. I try to, but there are patients that I keep banding and the, the, the varices is coming back, then that patient is. Now I know that this patient has varices. Remember, we talk about primary prophylaxis when we didn't know if the varices are going to progress, we didn't know the liver disease. I still have the same concern that if these patients bleed, they might not have the appropriate heart rate response. Um, but in selective patients, you really want to prevent these varices from coming back. You are scoping them very often, every three to six months, then they might not get to the point of developing very large varices that they bleed. That might be the only difference that you are scoping them frequently. But I, I still have the same concern. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And then you even mentioned a shunt, just to kind of take us way back. You talked about how the most common reason that we'll see with the portal hypertension is often extrahepatic. Our case has been mostly intrahepatic, but either way, we can potentially have recurrent bleeding. So if you have someone who does have this recurrent bleeding, can you walk us through that timing of referral for surgery and what that looks like? Well, I think that it goes back again to assess the patient. If I have a patient with recurrent esophageal variceal bleeding and it's a cirrhotic patient, we are at this stage of the compensating portal hypertension. This might be an indication for transplant. But let's say that this patient is not that cirrhotic or, or is a patient that have extra hepatic portal hypertension. And even in certain patients, biliary atresia patients that are stable for years and they are growing well and they have a perfect synthetic function, sometimes people decide to send this patient for shunts. Then the surgeries will be transplant for those patients that have very advanced liver disease and they have the compensatory portal hypertension, that will be the surgery. But for patients that might have a better uh, synthetic function and the liver disease is not advanced or have maybe portal hypertension due to portal vein thrombosis or non-synrotic portal hypertension, those patients benefit from shown. And actually, the management of patients with portal vein thrombosis, the recommendation is these patients that have portal vein thrombosis and have varices, you just send them to a surgeon. Don't even bother to try to eradicate the varix. Send them to a surgeon that is expert in these procedures, and they can perform something called a mesenteric left portal vein bypass or mesorrection. The benefit of this is that you are bringing the blood flow back to the liver. The surgeon will create a bypass between the superior mesenteric vein and the intrahepatic veins. Then you are bypassing the portal vein and you bring the blood flow back to the liver. Having a portal vein thrombosis is not very healthy for the liver. And when you do this bypass, the liver benefit. 
uh, from that. And that's why this patient sh should get this shown. Or it's a new technique by interventional radiology where they attend recanalization of the portal vein with the placement of the tips. And these are vascular interventional procedures. Um, this is for the mesorrection. For patients with non-serotic portal hypertension that don't have a normal liver, then the shown that is ideal, it will be a distal splenorenal shown. It's a shown between the left renal vein and the splenic vein. This way, you deviate some of the blood and the collaterals that the spleen is bringing to the uh, stomach and the esophagus to the left uh, renal vein, but still preserve the blood flow from the superior mesenteric vein to the liver. There, there are many other types of shunts that are central shunts uh, that are not really recommended in pediatrics because they carry a high risk of worsening liver disease, hyperammonemia. Then I will say, when we talk in pediatric, my three preferred surgical procedures for portal hypertension are transplants, mesorrection, or distal splenorenal shunt. But the mesorrection only works if the liver is healthy. This is for patients with normal liver parenchyma and portal vein thrombosis. I see. So there's really a lot that goes into this decision-making, and it's another one of those situations where you do share decision-making with a surgeon. And I can see how it's important to have someone with a lot of experience in this area. Yeah, I think that these decisions have to be made at a center with a multidisciplinary approach, a center where you have interventional radiology that offer your input. You have the surgeons. Um, usually they are the transplant surgeons, the ones that have the most of the expertise doing this. And, and a hepatologist that we can speak about the patient's liver health status. It's really worth to get this patient to surgery if we know that he will need a transplant in the next three, four years. Then I will not recommend this chance if I think that the patient will need a transplant in the next couple of years. And definitely is contraindicated if the patient have elevated bilirubin in synthetic function. That patient needs a transplant. That patient cannot go for surgery. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and if you're practicing in a smaller center or a rural site who maybe doesn't have access to this, uh, would you recommend then a pretty early referral to a larger center that has all of these resources? Yeah, I think that these patients uh, with pediatric patients, adult patients are different because there are so many of them and there is so many expertise by the regular gastroenterologist to manage this patient. Pediatric gastroenterology in a center with our hepatologists and the expertise of interventional radiologists shouldn't be managing these patients. Children are very complex. We don't have large database or multi-center trials or large trials that you can read and get the knowledge from that. I hope that we can get there, but today we practice based on the experience that we have. And I have to tell you, we take care of a lot of these kids here in New York at the Children's Hospital, New York Presbyterian. But in other hospitals, you see one patient every two, three years. You don't have the expertise to, to handle this patient, and they should refer to, to a center of expertise. Well, and the science is changing so much. So if we start to look towards the future, what do you see as the main changes that are coming in the next 10 years or so? I think the changes has to come from data. Eh? We need to get data. And I'm very, very excited that Dr. Benjamin Snyder from Texas Children has organized an international multicenter pediatric portal hypertension registry. 
Uh, he started about two years ago. There are several centers already participating. We are one of those centers. Then we are just collecting retrospective data. And people say it's retrospective, but this is the data that we need to make sure that agencies, uh, mainly the NIH, understand the need to study this, understand the need to support prospective data collection, understand the need for us to have a thousand patients with portal hypertension and 10 different etiologies that we can stratify and do clinical trials and apply new medications. I think that this is a very, very important and um, very excited about this registry. The other thing is um, new medications that has been approved. For example, terlipressin is a medication that has been used in Europe for years. They don't use octreotide, they use terlipressin uh, for this GI bleeds. It's not approved in this country, but it has been recently approved for uh, the treatment of hepatorenal syndrome in adults. Then I hope that this will follow through with that. Eh? Eventually, we'll get approved also for the management of patients with GI bleed. And we didn't talk about other complications of patients with GI bleed, like a hepatorenal syndrome, um, acute kidney injury that can happen, all the things that could happen in these patients. Um, and telepresin is a drug that is promising, and I hope that we can get it approved for pediatric. The other thing is development of predictive models. I really think that we need to stratify portal hypertension in different categories. Eh? And these models, for example, most of these uh, prognostic models that has been done, all these algorithms of treatment that were developed 15 and 20 years ago in adults were developed on patients with hepatitis C. Guess what? Those patients don't exist anymore because they are cured. And we don't know if we can apply that to patients with uh, fatty liver. We don't know if we can apply that with patients with autoimmune hepatitis that will be responding to treatment and getting better. Then I think that developing predictive models based on the etiology of portal hypertension is important. And the other thing that is very exciting is the new interventional radiology techniques. There are our best friends. Um, they can do things that we cannot... Um, for example, this technique, and that is the balloon occluded retrograde transvenous obliteration of gastric varices. is something that has changed the way that we manage um, gastric varices. Many of these patients, there was a point that they needed to go to surgery. And now interventional radiologists, if they have a spontaneous splenorenal shunt, they go for a procedure and is one or two hours procedures and they go home and they are very successful. Then the, the recanalization of the portal vein, the intervention of radiology is the field that will be an ally for us uh, on taking care of this patient and treating these patients. And I think that they have a lot to offer and it will bring a lot to the table for us to take care of these patients. I love that so much coming in the future for this patient population. And you do bring up a good point. I think this is one of our only episodes so far where we've talked about portal hypertension, but we definitely need to have some additional ones to talk about some of these details in the future. This is a newer question we've been asking for those who, you know, we've talked about so much and you've already mentioned a couple key things for us to remember, but if you could summarize what are the top three takeaway points that you would like all of our listeners to remember from this episode? Well, I think first of all, children are no small adults. 
the etiology of liver disease is different. The ability to modify the progression of liver disease is different. And the tools that we have is, is different. We cannot do banding in a three-month-old, and the way that we approach that patient is going to be different. Then the number two is the complexity of this patient. You need to understand the expertise that is required to take care of this patient. And this goes back to the question that you asked me before. You need a multidisciplinary team. You need critical care team, anesthesia team, surgeons, GI, interventional radiologists with expertise in this particular area. If you don't have that in your center, refer the patient, stabilize the patient and send it to a center that uh, can take care of that. And the other thing is we need to develop data. We need to collect data. We need to stratify patients based on severity of disease and etiology of the portal hypertension and identify those patients that need treatment. How we are going to say, I'm going to scope you because you need a variceal ligation. Getting to that point that I'm not just selling the idea and taking you to the OR to scope you and see what you have. And I need to scope 20 patients to find one that I can intervene. I really think that we need to get to that point to develop those models. And also, we need to develop effective treatment for the prevention of the variceal bleeding in children that we don't have because the beta blockers are still scary and we are very scared to use it. But we need pharmacotherapy that prevent the progression of the varices in children. All right. If Dr. Schneider from Texas Children's is listening, you have a lot of work to do with all of this multi-center data that you're collecting. <laughs> Dr. Martinez, thank you so, so, so much for spending this time with us. If you've looked back on your long career, what has been your most valuable advice that people have given to you? And what advice do you give to our listeners? Well, I think that the most valuable advice came from my mother. Very early on, she told me, you need to go to school. You need to study. My mother only finished sixth grade. My father only finished 11th grade. They were not well-educated, but they knew that education was the way to bring us forward and the only way that we can be successful in our life and, and in our career. And then she also told me, but when you go to school, try to choose something that you like and enjoy, because this is what you are going to be doing for the rest of your life. And these two things are very valuable for me, and they came from her and um, she is, uh, you know, uh, my biggest uh, advisor still today. <laughs> uh, she also is very bossy, but uh, it's my mom. What can I do? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. My mom used to say, you're either going to be working with your brain or you'll have to work with your hands and feet. And so, uh, you know, studying is such an important thing. And then to the listeners, I said, People that are listening already have gotten an education and this is what they are here. And I think that the focus should be on advancing the field. Um, we should be curious and we need to get involved and establish collaborations and answer relevant questions. It doesn't matter how difficult the question could be, is today. You need to kind of peel it like, a, like a, you're peeling an onion. Eh? The question is in the center of that onion. The answer is there. You need to peel it one at a time and go through different phases uh, of the investigation or the research, engaging people, engaging collaboration, whether it's to improve the diagnosis and management of portal hypertension in children or any other disorder of your interest. Um, 
the days go by, the years go by, and the only thing that is relevant is what you contribute to your patients, to your society. And if you don't get involved and be curious, and maybe the questions are not coming to you, then help others answer the question. If those people put the question out there and call you to be a collaborator, do that. That is so true. Well, Dr. Martinez, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. I want to thank you, all the listeners. I hope that you enjoy and you learn something from our discussion. Well, that was a great episode. Thanks to Dr. Martinez for joining us today for sharing her wisdom and knowledge on portal hypertension and management of varices and variceal bleeding. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram at at Sounds, and Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. Tell a person about the podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover it. And on the Buzzsprout page, you can also support the show by making a donation to the NASPGIN Foundation. You can get there at www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things that the foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you all for listening. Until next time. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta.